Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, friends. How y'all doing? Good. Uh, my name is Michael, and I am part of the teaching team here, and I'm happy to be here with you today. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Matthew chapter 13. Like uh, Mark said, that's what we're going to be studying today. Matthew 13 has a long sermon from Jesus. We're going to be just looking at the first portion of it. So you could turn there or tune in there, because uh, that's where we'll be camping out. And as you do, I got, uh, got a question for you. We're going to start with a little group participation. So everybody's an emperor today. So throw your thumb out to the side if you would. I just got one question for you. It's an agree or disagree. If you agree, you can give me a thumbs up. If you disagree, you can give me a thumbs down, all right? Like four of you are participating. (laughs) This is your chance to be king of the world right now, okay? So you got the thumb out. Agree or disagree? Sometimes it can be difficult to receive criticism well. Okay, I'm getting thumbs up from across the room. So nice little boost. Thank you. That's the question. I think that probably most of us would agree when it comes to how to answer this question. What would be your instinct? What would be your natural reaction if somebody just came up to you, looked you straight in the face and said, I think there are some things about you that need to change. (laughs) Like we would, you know that feeling where like your mind starts racing, your your heart is pumping, your blood is flowing, your face gets hot. You think of all the reasons why you're probably fine just the way you are, you know. And we respond in different ways. Some of us internalize, oh, you're probably right. There's a lot about me that needs to change. Let me add to your list because there's this and this. Others justify, well, there's a reason why I am the way I am. Maybe there's a blaming of someone else. There's an attacking of the person. Oh, you got one for me? Well, I got 17 for you, so let's roll, you know. But whatever our response is, most of us agree that in these moments, they're not particularly enjoyable. Like, we don't like them a whole lot. Matter of fact, I learned this last week that uh, there are two main parts of the brain that are engaged when we receive criticism. One of them is called the amygdala, and it's the same part of our brain that regulates the fight or flight response. So the same part of our brain that activates when we fear that our lives may be in danger is activated when somebody comes up to us and offers us some sort of criticism. Not particularly fun. So if you would, one more thing I'm going to ask them. If you would, turn to your neighbor and answer them and tell them. You don't have to tell me, although I'm listening. Tell them your answer to this question. On a scale of 1 to 10, how good are you at receiving criticism? If you're alone, I'm just reading your mind right now. No big deal, you know. This is when I wish I had like a Batman sonar machine so I could just hear what everyone's saying. I can hear a few and it's entertaining. Let's open up our Bibles if they're not again open. Matthew 13, if they are open, let me read to us. We're not going to take in the whole chapter. We are going to take in the first 23 verses. Gospel of Matthew, Matthew reporting what Jesus is saying. Here's what it says, 13.1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell along rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. 
Whoever has ears, let them hear. That's the story. Next verse tells us about a conversation that happened later with Jesus and his disciples. They came to him and asked, verse 10, why do you speak to the people in parables? He said to them, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. Ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their eyes, ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to look into what you see but did not see it, and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. Verse 18. Listen into what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. That's our text for today. What are we going to do with it? Well, we're going to try to hear it well. We're going to try to hear it well in two ways. We're going to go at this, this text uh, in sort of two rounds of hearing. The first round will be just trying to understand what it's saying, trying to hear it in the sense of comprehending the message, getting it in context. And the second time through, we'll kind of, kind of figure out what we should do in response to this. And I'll be honest with you guys, I have a lot less answers than questions this morning. We're just going to question this text from a number of different angles and see if we can't hear from Jesus ourselves. So hearing the parable, round one, what is Jesus saying? This first question, what is Jesus saying? Seems to make sense to start with this basic question. Let's try to understand what he means. And I, I kind of think this is the easiest part of the parable. There's a lot about this thing that's not easy. This part is fairly clear. So I think just keeping it pretty simple, what Jesus is saying is that our response to him reveals the condition of our hearts. So Jesus comes into our life saying stuff, doing stuff, trying to get our attention, and how we respond to him shows what's going on in here. We're the different kinds of soil. That seems to me the basic point of this text Uh, The idea of a teacher sowing seed is a pretty common image in the ancient world. Jewish rabbis and and Greek and Roman philosophers would describe themselves as sowers and their, their teaching as seeds. But Jesus puts his own little spin on it, and he really draws more attention, not so much to the sower, not even so much to the seed, but more so to the soil. That's the point that Jesus makes an emphasis in his version of this story. It's about the soils. And what he's saying is most people will reject him. Like three to one, those are the numbers in the story. Most people are going to reject him because most people don't have hearts that are ready to hear what Jesus wants to say. So in terms of understanding the point of the parable, the point of the text is not particularly complicated. But let's dig a little bit deeper and ask a second question. Why say it right now? Like, you just don't say this out of nowhere. There, there seems to be a context to this. Why say this truth right now in this moment in his life story? And I think the answer is because Jesus came into the world as Savior, but the results weren't quite what we might expect. 
If you've been walking with us for a while, you may know that we're in this, this uh, journey of walking through the, the life of Jesus. And if you're just joining, all good. Hop on in. We've been walking through the life of Jesus chronologically from start, and we're going to go all the way to the finish, just putting it in order as best we can of what happened. And we've kind of sectioned out the different phases of the story. Now, these are our words, but we feel like they come out of the text and fit what's going on. The first part we just called the arrival. And it's like the birth narratives, the Christmas stories, when Jesus is first showing up and a comes to earth. Then we went into this period of obscurity where Jesus is starting to do things, but it's mostly off the beaten path, kind of on the margins of society, gathering some momentum, but not not really going public. And then there's this recognition phase where he kind of goes a little bit public and people start to recognize that you're like, you're like, you think you're the Messiah. Like you're doing all sorts of things that are drawing attention. And so people are looking at him and what do we see when we look at him? And then we're now in this phase that we're calling revolution which is the point where Jesus starts to gather the troops and says, let's roll like we're trying to do something here. We're trying to change something here. And this is the point in the story when you expect people to start signing up. You expect people to start saying, yes, I want to be a part of your program. I want to be a part of your mission. I'm going to enlist in your revolution. And yet what's happening in the context of this event is not that. What's happening actually around this is that a lot of people don't like what they see when they look at Jesus. Matthew 13 follows Matthew 12. And Matthew 12 starts by Jesus getting into a little fight with some religious teachers. And then a couple of religious groups that usually don't get along, some Pharisees and some Sadducees, they plot together how might they might arrest Jesus in order to put him to death. Then after that, the Pharisees, the, the Bible scholars, kind of the most religious of all, accuse Jesus of being possessed by a demon. They are not messing around. This is, this is what they think is going on with Jesus, demon-possessed guy. Then after this, his own family, his mother and brothers, aren't aligned with him, sitting, learning from him. They're trying to step in and intervene because they think he's gone a little wacko. So before we get to Matthew 13, you've got a bunch of people rejecting him, the kind of people who you would expect to accept him. And then after the sermon and parables in Matthew 13, at the very end of this chapter, he goes back home and those people don't accept him as a prophet either. So all the people that you would expect to love Jesus seem to hate Jesus. All the people that we would think are going to be a part of the Messiah and what he's doing are actually saying, no, thanks, we're not interested. And so the question at this point in the narrative is, what gives here? Like, what's the problem? And I love Jesus's honesty. You know, we often say, well, you know, listen, it's not you, it's me. Jesus is like, well, listen, it's not me, it's you. (laughs) I guess what he says in this story. The problem is not with the sower. I'm throwing seeds out. The problem is not with my seeds. They sometimes work and there's nothing different about the seeds from here or the seeds from there. Like the problem is the soils. It is not me. It is not a messenger. It is not a message. It is a recipient issue. And this is still a live issue, mind you. Still the reason why people reject Jesus in our world. Any of y'all ever become a Christian and, or, or like maybe you, you start to take your faith real seriously and then the people around you, like your homies, your friends, or, like, or your coworkers are like, you're not going to become like all psycho-religious person, are you? Kind of keep you at a distance. Or even those who may be kind to you as you progress in your own spiritual life. They, they're not so much like harsh about it, but they're also not lining up saying, give me some of that Jesus juice. I want some of what you have too, right? It just doesn't happen that way because a, a lot of people in our world Reject the good news of Jesus. Why? And let's think critically about what this looks like in our day, hearing the text in our day, because I think it's a little bit different than it was back then. You see, back then, people already decided what kind of a savior they wanted. And Jesus was physically present, though, so he could, like, correct their misunderstandings. And they didn't like his correction of their misunderstanding, so it kind of made them mad, right? They objected to this. 
But in our day, we also want a certain kind of savior. Like we decide ahead of time what we want from someone who's going to put our world back together again. And Jesus isn't physically here to correct people. So people say that they love Jesus, but they're really just molding and shaping him to fit modern preferences. We can pick any number of examples. I'm just going to give you one. There's a, uh, you, you may know this name. There's an author, Deepak Chopra. There's an author named Deepak Chopra who has written a number of books on Jesus. He's kind of a public intellectual of sorts in our culture. And he, um, he's, he says he's trying to come up with a vision of Jesus that fits both East and West. Anyway, I recently read an interview with him about some of his work. Let me read you a quote from it. He says, I want to offer the possibility that Jesus was truly, as he proclaimed, a savior. But then he says, not the savior, not the one and only son of God. Rather, Jesus embodied the highest level of enlightenment, and he intended to save the world by showing others the path to God consciousness. Okay, okay, well, apparently someone forgot to tell Jesus how he's supposed to save us. Now, I don't mean to be harsh or pick on someone who's not in the room, but often the statements of, you know, quote-unquote, public intellectuals represent where our culture is as a whole. Lots of people reject the gospel of Jesus every day. Why? And Jesus is like, well, it's not me, it's you. It's not an issue with the message of the messenger, it is the soils. Messenger saying, message also soils, well, that's where the rub is. So why say it right now? Because we're in a place then and now where you think people might like what Jesus is offering, but they don't. The third question, though, that arises is why say it like this? Like if your point is to show up and say that, you know, your response to Jesus reveals the condition of your heart, why not just say, hey, so the resp- your response to Jesus reveals the condition of your heart. Why not just say, only those of you whose hearts are fully submitted to me, I'm just not me, but Jesus, you get it. Why doesn't Jesus just say, only those whose hearts are fully submitted to me are going to produce the fruit that you want? But the problem is that most of you aren't actually interested in letting me take control of your lives, letting me actually be your leader. And the reason why you don't say it that clear is because this cuts deep, you know? It doesn't always get the response that you want. I read, uh, out of curiosity, a number of articles this last week on how to receive criticism well. From different things like Fast Company and Forbes and Psychology Today, a bunch of different types of sources of, you know, experts in the field of taking criticism. And one of the things that was pretty consistent across every single one of them was, whenever you receive criticism, separate the criticism of what you're doing from who you are as a person. And that way you can hear it without being threatened. The only problem is that Jesus is criticizing who we are as a person. (laughs) Like that's the issue here. He's not just talking about something that you tend to do not the best way. He's talking about the condition of your heart. Only a heart that is fully submitted to Jesus can produce the fruit that he and we desire. But for many of us, the problem is that we're not as submitted to him as we think. Hearing those words is one thing, right? Hearing that truth is another So why say it like this? Because we have a tendency to assume that we're doing better than we really are. This came home to me this last week around our dinner table. We were sitting, just the four of us, me, my wife, my two kiddos. And uh, my son Carson was uh, sort of like, you know, kind of figuring out who was where. And he was talking about how who was diagonal from whom. And so, like, you know, he was, but he, said, he wasn't saying diagonal, though. He kept saying diatigo, like that was the way he was pronouncing it. So he's like, Mommy, you're diatigo from me, and Daddy's diatigo from Claire. And the rest of us, you know, we're just sort of smiling, and, you know, it's cute, it's adorable. And then he's sitting over there in his chair, and he's like, Man, it's crazy how good I'm saying this word. <laughs> 
And, and we gently corrected him, you know, and he's like, oh, okay. And we're like, that's okay, dude. Diatigo sounds cool too. Like, it's a good word, you know. But that's us. Like, we tend to place ourselves in the good group. If Jesus is like, hey, there's four groups, three of them are, you know, in the wrong and one of them's right, we'll be like, oh, man, it's nice to be here in the right. Woo, I like being here. If you're teachers, you know what this is like. You say to your classroom, man, half of y'all are fine, but the other half are lazy. And when you say this, like 80% of the room starts looking around like they just got appointed as a Supreme Court justice, you know. Guilty, 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 uh, guilty. Man, it feels good to be in the right side of this thing. It's not just children either. I should share this. I actually discovered this week that 94% of college professors think they're smarter and more effective than their peers. <laughs> it's probably true, you know. Except it's not just in education either. One question for everybody. Raise your hand if you think you're an above average driver. Come on, <laughs> be honest. Yeah, if we're honest, more than half of the room's hands are going up, Right? There's actually a technical term for this. It's called illusory superiority. We have this illusion that we're better than we really are. It's like if 10 were bad and 2 were good, the only question is whether I was number 1 or number 2, you know? Because that's just the way it is. Now, not in all things, but many of us do this in some things. And I think in our spiritual lives, we tend to do the same thing. And sometimes the only way to shake us out of our illusion of spiritual superiority, our assumption that all is fine with me, it's not a me problem, sometimes the only way to shake us out of that is a parable. Because parables don't come at you straight. They come at you from the side. They come at you slanted. I'm not sure if this is a good analogy, but when I was in high school, some of my friends, I never did this. Some of my friends um, at a party, they, they would turn the lights off and they would just jack somebody in the face. And then they turn the lights back on and be like, oh, who hit me? You know, which is a horrible thing to do. So young men, don't do that. And maybe it's a bad analogy for a parable because I'm not saying Jesus is turning the lights off and punching you in the face. But there's something there. Okay. Like that's how parables operate. It's not just straight at your face. It's coming around the side. And it's not because, don't get the image of Jesus as a harsh person who wants to hurt you. He's not, but he wants to take you somewhere. And if in order to get you where he wants you to go, which is where you deeply want to be anyway, if in order to do that, he's got to cause you a little bit of pain by clarifying and exposing that maybe I'm not who I think I am, he's willing to do that. He really is. So he says it like this because this is how I need to hear it. Because if he says it straight, I'm just going to assume I'm in the right group. But if he can bring me into the world of this story, maybe, just maybe, I'll listen long enough to hear that I'm perhaps not what I think I am. Jesus will always push us to confront the brutal facts. He's just that good to us. So we understand what this parable means, what it's supposed to do, but now what are we supposed to do? That's the hard question for me. That's the difficult challenge for me. So how do we really hear this parable at a heart level? To those with ears, let them hear. Cool, I want to have ears, Jesus. So let, let's do a soils test, okay? Let's, let's just sort of dig down deep a little bit. Let's, take a, let's, let this sort of, let's let this parable be like a mirror that we just stare at long enough to where we maybe find ourselves on the map that this story creates. Test our hearts, O oh God. This is a psalmist prayer. And show us what's going on in us. So let's take these three bad soils as cues and just ask some questions. That's honestly all I want to do. All I'm asking of you is that you let this parable invite you in to ask some questions that may not be particularly comfortable. The first question I think we need to ask is, how rational is your resistance? How rational is your resistance to the word of Jesus in your life. Chapter 13, verse 19, Jesus says, when anyone understands the message about the kingdom and hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. 
And so Jesus is, you know, the sower's throwing seed, and some of it lands on a pathway. So there's the crop, the field, and then there's a part where people have walked and they've stamped down the dirt, and some of the seed falls on there, and the birds come and eat it up. That's what's going on in the story. And Jesus says, this is referring to people who hear it, but it doesn't sink down deep, and the birds come and snatch it away, and the birds happen to be the evil one. So we're talking here. We're talking here about our resistance to the word of Jesus in our lives. This could be any type of resistance. This could be I'm resisting the call to become a follower of Jesus. Maybe that's what this resistance looks like for you. I'm not going to become a Christian. Or it could be, my guess for the majority in the room, more so like I know what Jesus is calling me to do, but I'm not going to do it. I have a sense of the next step he wants for me, but I just, for whatever reasons, and I have my reasons, I'm not in. And that's just the thing. We have our reasons. We experience it like this. You know, we hear this call to surrender our lives to Jesus. I'm supposed to give my life to him. He died for me, so I live for him. And yet we hear this, and then based on all of what we know to be true, we kind of evaluate this call, and we decide, you know what? I think this is not the best option for me. We weigh the pros and cons of obedience to Jesus, and we figure that the risk or the loss is just a little bit higher than the possible reward. And so we just sort of say no. And this feels to us like a pretty rational process, scientific even. Maybe. You're just thinking it through, right? Maybe. But Jesus seems to suggest that something more is going on behind the scenes. He seems to suggest that we're looking at this situation with one eye closed, Because according to Jesus, there's another player in the game. He's not even named here. He's just called the evil one. There's this malicious presence in this story, this additional character who's hostile to faith and doesn't think very much of you. And Jesus seems to think that the process of us hearing a claim on our lives, when this happens, we have an enemy who tries to step in and ruin whatever progress the word of Jesus makes in us, in our hearts, in our lives. Again, different kinds of resistance. Maybe for you, it's over the past few months, you've been hearing something from your time in the word or from something a friend said, or just from looking around and listening to the spirit or from going to church and hearing a sermon. Maybe Jesus was pushing you to do something and you felt like I'm supposed to take this step. And then you went home and you thought it through and you're like, nah, I'm out. No, it was just emotional. I just got caught up in the moment. You know, they put something in that grape juice again. You know, that's all it was. It wasn't real. We resist. We decide this is not something I'm going to do, and we think it's fine. I'm just an adult making a grown-up decision, and I don't see Jesus having the same read on the situation. I see him saying there's another factor involved here, and it may be the one that's determining the outcome. So how scientific is your rejection of the word of Jesus in your life? How rational is your resistance? What if it's not as rational as you think? Second question that I think this parable invites us to ask is, how deep are your roots? Next couple of verses, 20 and 21, he says, The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. I do believe that trouble and even persecution are coming. And I do have some very real concerns about whether we can weather what's coming down the pike. But my confidence that trouble is on the way is not a result of some sort of half-baked crystal ball theory about what the future holds for us here in the church in America. I don't know what the future holds for us. My confidence that trouble's on the way comes out of the fact that Scripture promises that trouble's always coming. Jesus says in John 15, listen, they didn't make it easy for me. It's not going to make it easy for you. 
2 Timothy 3, Paul says, anybody who wants to step up and live a godly life in Christ Jesus will experience some blowback. And Jesus assumes here that trouble or persecution are coming. We're talking about the soil hill on rocky ground. So in Palestine, there's a, it's kind of like some places in southwest Missouri, there's, except it's a limestone bedrock just a little bit under the soil. And so during rainy season over there, when it's a little bit cooler temperatures, the sun is not bearing down quite as much all day long, you can throw some seed on this and it'll sprout up pretty quick. Oh, cute, little green plant. But then when the sunny season comes and the temperatures start to rise, that plant's going to try to push down and get some nutrients from the soil. Those roots are going to shoot down and they're going to run into a rock and they're not going to be able to do anything, so they're going to wither up and die. That's the image Jesus gives us. So just because you got excited one time or had some sort of a spiritual experience in church that you thought you'd remember forever does not mean that you'll be standing in the end. Just because you decided one time, I'm going to take the next step, does not guarantee that you'll continue taking all the other steps. So if you dig down deep beneath the topsoil of your soul, what is it that you find there? And I'm convinced that the church as a whole is going to be fine. God will protect his bride. I believe that God will never leave himself without a faithful witness. So on a macro level, the church will trust in Jesus and hold the line and be faithful to him. But that's no guarantee for any of us as individuals or families, or or even a congregation, I think we need to hear this word and ask the question, will I have what it takes? Will you? And please don't be fooled by this. Trying hard in the moment is not going to work. Those plants can shoot down those roots as intensely as they like, but if there's nothing but rock, it is not going to happen. If there is no root system to receive water and nutrients, it is not going to thrive. Sometimes I think we just wait for these moments and hope for the best. And it reminds me of back when I was growing up playing basketball out in the driveway. And I'd like stick my tongue out like Michael Jordan thinking I was going to jump higher or something. Kids do this all the time. They just imitate their athletes, just imitate their favorite athlete. Maybe you do his mannerisms or wear his or her shoes. You don't get any faster, jump any higher. Your shots don't go in with any more regularity because that kind of excellence requires training, requires roots. So do you know what you believe? And do you have a practiced habit of obedience to God's word, even when obedience is hard? And do you have supporting habits that will enable you to sustain long-term vitality? Maybe you're not strong enough today, but do you have habits in place so that a month or two or a year or two or three down the road, you'll be strong enough for whatever's coming? How deep are your roots? What if they're not as deep as you think? And the third uncomfortable question that this text, I think, invites us to ask, please don't resist. The third question I think this text invites us to ask is, how resilient is your faith? I love the word resilient. I looked it up in the dictionary. It gave me a couple dictionary definitions. Resilient means able to withstand or recover quickly from difficult conditions. You can bounce back. Next definition said, able to recoil or spring back into shape after bending, stretching, or being compressed. Anybody in here feel bent and stretched and compressed? Maybe you think, isn't this the same thing as the second soil? Not exactly. Let me read you what Jesus says, 1322. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. One of my friends who teaches this passage regularly likes to say that this soil is not so much a test of pressure as it is a test of pleasure. I don't want to overplay the distinction too much, but Jesus does separate them, and I think it's a pretty genius move. Because when I think about somebody giving up on their faith, typically I just assume it happens because life gets too hard. 
That's not what Jesus is talking about in this case. Sometimes life gets too easy. It's not hardship, but success that poses the threat of literally choking out our faith like weeds. You know, supposedly Abraham Lincoln once said, maybe you've heard this quote before, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, you know the rest of the quote? Give him power. It's a great word. There's some argument about whether or not it really comes from Abraham Lincoln or if somebody else said it and attributed it to him. I don't know who said it first, but whoever said it was just quoting from Proverbs, alluding to Proverbs 27, 21. I love, hate this proverb. says, the crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but people are tested by their praise. This third soil that Jesus is describing is not a person whose life has fallen apart. This is a person who has irons and many fires. There's lots of plates spinning. There's much to be concerned with. This person is busy and successful, and their success is lying to them, and they're buying it. Duped by the dollars, wooed in by wealth, distracted by all sorts of, no doubt, morally neutral things. There is nothing inherently wrong with money or promotions, or raises, or education, or your child's sports teams, or Christmas parties, or gifts and decorations, or to-do lists, or social media, or fiscal responsibilities, or any of the other things that get in the way. All these things are fine when they stay in their proper place, but man, they don't like to stay in their proper places, do they? They like to become too important, crowd down around us in ways that we all recognize, but sometimes we don't do anything about it. So like nasty weeds, man, I hate weeds. I used to work in the gardens when I was a kid. I hate weeds. Like nasty weeds, they choke the life. They choke the spirit out of a heart that's ready to hear Jesus. It's not a pretty picture. So how resilient is your faith? And what if it's not as resilient as you think? Where do we go from here with a story like this? I mean, I don't know. You tell me, you know. I, I I don't get the sense that Jesus is trying to be overly practical. Here are a couple of tips on how to improve your life. Not, the, not this time. I get the sense that what Jesus wants us to do is unassume that all is fine and good down there in the deep parts of our soul. To quote one of America's coldest poets, O'Shea Jackson Sr., let me put it in terms of another soap culture. Here's what Jesus is saying. You gotta check yourself before you wreck yourself, okay? Like that's what I hear Jesus saying to me. I'm not even joking. You got to pay close attention to what's going on because what's going on down below is going to determine where you end up going. And sometimes I feel like we find ourselves assuming that just because we're religious and religious in a way that has something to do with Jesus, that everything is fine. That, that's not the way it works. Like you can hop on I-44 and drive as long as you want, but you will not get to St. Louis unless you are headed east. Because the question is not, am I on the right highway? It's, am I moving in the right direction? And so if you are, then just keep driving. Keep moving forward because your future looks like fruit, 30, 60, 100 fold. But if you're not, to those with ears, Jesus says, let them hear. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.